So without further ado, Joshua Clover. Thanks. I was just standing over there. Hi, Hi everyone. How are you? I have little notes. Um, thanks, Scott, for hosting me so much. It's um, nice to be here in Los Angeles. Um, which, I mean, it's not cheerful to note that Los Angeles has been the home of some of the most significant riots of the 20th century. I'm sure if you're from around here or know much about Los Angeles, you're familiar with them. Uh, the three major ones are probably the Zoot Suit riots, the Watts riot in 65, and the LA riots in 92. We just passed the 24th. Hey, Kern. Um, we just passed the 24th anniversary of the... LA riots. We also just passed the one-year anniversary of the Baltimore riots. And the, the book is sort of an uh, attempt to sort of theorize or give an account of, the, as, as, as mentioned, why among what some historians call the repertoire of struggles or repertoire of collective action, the riot has returned uh, and sort of supplanted the strike. Now, of course, neither one ever really goes away. It's not like people only riot for 400 years and then only strike and only riot. Uh, there's always sort of multiple uh, forms of struggle happening. You have a lead form in any given period. And the book is fundamentally concerned with why the riot has returned as the lead form since the 60s or 70s, arguably. Certainly since 1979, we've seen a marked uh, numerical increase in riots as the strike or sort of organized labor action has declined. Uh, quite dramatically, as, 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 you may, as you may well know. So I want to sort of tell a story about how that came to happen, and I want to focus on one particular riot, or by which I mean two particular riots. Over and over again, it's the case that every riot is, is two riots. This happens very consistently. Uh, most often, the riot is, uh, there's two of them, because there's one in the contemporary era uh, the, the sort of standard form of the riot, one when a black kid gets murdered by usually the cops, and another riot when those cops are discovered to have impunity, no indictment is handed down, or they receive minimal or no sentence, uh, and another riot happens. So the riot I want to think about in particular tonight is the riot uh, that happens after the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014, which is two riots, right? There's the riot in August that's in Ferguson, uh, and then there's the national wave of, of riots that happen. Uh, the first riots are in August and then in November when the cop who, who kills Michael Brown is, they decide not to indict him. And both of those riots have striking characteristics that I want to point out and try and treat as a mystery that can maybe be explained. The first is that the first riots in August are by some measures, and it's not a clear science, the longest lasting riots in American history, which is easy to forget. Uh, we have a long history of riots, and it's, it's hard to imagine. We've really encountered the exceptional one. But by most measures, the Ferguson riots in the town of Ferguson, where I, I spent uh, uh, quite some time, I went there as soon as I could after he was killed, uh, last for longer in open riot than any previous riot in the, in the U.S. And I'm curious about that fact. The other thing that really struck me is when there's a the national wave of riots after the cop goes unindicted, Darren Wilson, right? Um, they all took the same form. If you were watching the news or Facebook, which passes for the news for a lot of people, they 
there was this sort of bizarre sort of telepathy of riot where somehow everyone across the country in about 30 cities knew that the thing to do was to block the freeway. And if a freeway wasn't available because they were in a smaller town, they blocked the biggest thoroughfare available to them. And it's not on the surface clear why that's the obvious thing to do uh, in, that, in that situation. And so what I want to try and do tonight in hopefully not too long, it's a little closer, is tell a story about uh, that tries to get at the mystery of those two particular phenomena, the long-lasting riot of 2014 and the freeway blockage as a generalized phenomenon in a way that can sort of locate it in a historical trajectory. And then once I sort of try and work my way through that, uh, I'll stop and you can ask questions or tell me why I'm wrong. These are my two favorite things to do, so uh, we'll have some, some time for that. Um, the, to tell the story about Ferguson, I'm going to have to go back a little bit to 1347, which I'm sure you remember relatively well. Uh, um, the, my book, uh, it's, 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 it's not, if I say the book starts in 1347, I might make it seem like it's an extremely long and historical chronicle. It's really not. But I do start the story there for a reason, in that by my measure of what a riot is, the first two significant riots in the West uh, are both in 1347. I should stress, I don't know shit about riots in China um, and in the uh, Asian subcontinent. Uh, the phenomena there seem completely fascinating to me. There's various experts in them. Ching Kwan Lee, who's a professor at UCLA, is a real scholar of Chinese riots. I don't want to claim any expertise. The riots I'm going to talk about are largely in what will become the capitalist core, so Western Europe, the United Kingdom, the United States. Uh, and the, there's these two riots in 1347 in England uh, in which boats in two different harbors, notably uh, King's Lynn, uh, uh, Peasants storm the boats, which are filled with grain that's being shipped to France, and they storm the boats and they remove the grain from the boats. And these these both happen uh, within a fairly short uh, period. And the question that I think you would reasonably ask would be, like, well, why do you date riots to those events? There have been risings of the poor since about as long as there have been poor people. So what's the distinction which makes these a riot? And that's actually the first puzzle of the book. It turns out that the definition of riots and the distinction between riots and strikes, as is usually made by most scholars, is, and I don't mean to be judgy, but it's terrible. Usually the distinction is made as follows. The riots are violent and involve multiple people. The laws change in various places. It's often a minimum of three. It's very common that it's defined that a riot is 12 people engaging in violence that disturbs the public peace. I'm not sure why 12, except I'm interested in the way that's like the inverse image of a jury, right? There are 12 people who are in charge of obeying the law, and here's 12 people who are in charge of disobeying the law uh, in some sense. Uh, but that definition requires us to believe this very strange thing about strikes, which is that they're fundamentally nonviolent. Uh, that's a peculiar sort of ideology of strike that's arisen in the recent past that associates strikes with a kind of ascetic 
downing of tools, high moral ground, um, dignified marching in a picket line. And as many of you might know, if you've sort of looked into labor history, this is utter nonsense. Strikes historically are incredibly violent. You can think of various examples. The strike that will later be known as the Colorado Minefield Wars. Um, you can see how that might not end with the Ludlow Massacre. Not terribly peaceful. There are strikes in Lyon in France in the 1830s, two of them that involve barricade fighting and guerrilla struggles across the city. So the distinction of like violent, nonviolent really won't do to separate them out. So in trying to think about the history, I needed a better definition. And I sort of borrowed one by modifying a, a definition provided by the great historian E.P. Thompson who in his famous essay called The Moral Economy of the English Crowd in the 18th Century starts to make, he doesn't quite complete it, the following distinction, which is that riots are struggles over the price of market goods for people who are compelled to survive by purchasing stuff uh, and they can't afford to survive that way and so they enter into kinds of struggles to effectively lower the prices, sometimes to zero, right? Looting is a kind of that, a kind of that struggle that demands that the proper price is zero. So he calls these price setting uh, about the value of market goods. Whereas strikes are strugg struggles over the value of labor power, right? Uh, also assorted things, labor conditions and things like this, which more or less come down to the same phenomenon. So this distinction proves incredibly powerful at dividing up this historical action, price setting about market goods, price setting about labor. And if you make that distinction, you can actually have a fairly clear account of strike and riot until our present. And I'm gonna come back to that uh, in, a, in a couple of minutes. But one of the things we can say about this distinction is it distinguishes us between sort of populations. The population of riot is the population who's compelled to make their way in the marketplace by, by purchasing market goods. And the population of strike are those who make their way via selling their labor in order to pur purchase market, market goods later. So, you can, in fact, sort of make a further distinction now, or maybe a previous distinction, which goes that uh, in, period, in periods when the economy is organized around production, right, productive activities, factory and manufacturer work most famously, when you have a large percentage of the population doing formal wage labor, you get a lot of strikes. And sure enough, this turns out to be the case. Uh, whereas when you have periods where there's a relatively lower percentage of the population in formal wage labor, but everyone still has to buy shit to stay alive, you get a lot of riots. This actually accurately describes the entire trajectory of the West. So the period from 1347 to 1800 more or less, is dominated by riots. And when you get the Industrial Revolution takeoff and a huge amount of internalization of people into wage labor in the scene of the factory for the most part, the uh, strikes are to dominate and that remains true until the 60s or 70s when you start to get deindustrialization. Uh, you get more and more people uh, leaving production into the space of the market, consumption, exchange, and the riot starts to return. So that's the narration of the book, right? It, it divides up sort of the long durée of proto-capitalism and capitalism into three periods. Circulation, 1400 to 1800. Production, 1800 to 1975, more or less. And then circulation again. Now again, both are always present. You can't have one without the other. It's a question of what predominates, what the dominant economic mode is. And again, this is something I'll come back to in a minute. But so in this first long period of riot, 
14th century to the end of the 18th century, there's basically two kinds of riots. They kind of look the same and almost always get filed under the heading of a bread riot. The most famous example is people who, are, who need to survive by buying bread uh, and can't afford it march down to the baker and demand the baker lower their prices. These are often led by women, uh, often because women are in charge of, or uh, Thompson uses the term, the, the marketing situation. They do family marketing. Uh, in fact, the very first appearance of the black flag as a political symbol seems to be in one of these bread riots where a woman, these riots are often signaled because a woman will attach a, a loaf of bread to so like a fishing pole sort of and hold it up. And everyone will know the riot's on. And at some point it becomes a tradition to paint these loaves of bread black. Uh, and so this black loaf of bread is the first black flag we have. If any of you happen to be fans of anarchism or Henry Rollins, uh, this is a useful thing to know about the history of the black flag. Uh, and so this is the most famous kind of riot, is the going down to the baker. But it's actually not the most common in this period. A related but distinct riot is the most common in this period, where a merchant is trying to often in times of famine, ship grains out of a county or out of the parish to get a higher price elsewhere. So this happens with the rise of a national market, uh, eventually international market. We're trying to ship grains elsewhere for a profit while there's people starving in the home county. And so they go out and they stop it from happening. They block the wagon, they seize the grain, they distribute it to the people. And that's actually, we call this an export riot, a more common form of riot between the 14th and the 18th centuries than the going down to the, the baker. You can see now why I think of those two moments in the, the, where they go onto the boats to seize the grain as these earliest examples of riot, because that's sort of what riot is in this period, most commonly, is the seizure of grain and preventing it from being exported and sort of blockading it. And that's that and the, and the more common bread riot holds sway until there's a huge wave in 1800-1801 and the strike starts to come in and the strike more or less supplants the riot uh, as, as uh, capitalism takes off in the West and manu- the Industrial Revolution takes off and this goes on. So this is backstory and now I want to try and make the move to the present. Although you may have already seen the move. In fact, it should be perfectly clear. One of the things that's striking about the riots of the last few years is how decisively they've replicated these forms. So if we think about the arguably largest riot-type activity uh, of the last, uh, let's see, uh, 10 years, it's probably the Oakland port blockade in 2011, which involved between 25,000 and 40,000 people, and you can see, there it is, going to the port and blockading it almost identical to 1347. And if you think about what happens after Ferguson in November of 2014, again, it's identical. Everyone goes out and blocks the thoroughfare, blocks the freeway. So it's formally identical, but there's at least a couple of distinctions we want to be attentive to in thinking about the present. And my guess is they've already come to you. One, there's far less seizure of goods in all those freeway blockades in 2014. Highways get blocked, circulation of goods gets blocked, there's very little seizure of goods. You could say that the underlying impulse is probably less we need to seize those grains and more the desire to make everything stop, a sort of horror at the world uh, before you and, and the desire just to shut everything down and shutting down freeways seems like the way you can make everything stop. So that's one difference is that we have a less seizure of goods. We still have some, right? Riots still feature looting, 
And everyone acts like, well, that's the thing that delegitimates the riot. That's the, that's the sort of the, the errancy, the, 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 uh, the bad, unacceptable activity. We might somehow have sympathy for riots if there weren't for a few terrible people doing this crazy thing and looting, which is nonsense, right? Looting is what riots are. Riots were always looting. That's how they start. It's, that's the form of price setting, right? Like, looting is the truth and the core of a riot. Other things are sort of ancillary to it. Uh, but you get limited looting uh, and sort of desperate and uh, anxious looting, uh, failed looting in contemporary riots. So that's one difference is there's a difference around seizure of goods and the other is the racialization of the contemporary riot, right? So just as I have a series circulation, production circulation, the story I tell about history goes, guess this from the title of the book, Riot Strike Riot, which map onto those economic periods. But uh, the full account is actually Riot Strike Riot Prime, and the question is why the contemporary riot, since let's say the 60s, is so markedly different in character from those old riots, and the main way it's different is its intense racialization. And so much so that they always get called, like, we don't have bread riots anymore, we have race riots. And in some sense, the project of the book is to try and understand the relationship and the similarities and the differences between bread riots and race riots. So that's what I want to try and sort of finish with, is to try and talk about that a little bit. I actually don't think it's too challenging to get to the, the basic accounting of it. When you start to get deindustrialization in the United States, to choose one example, but this is also true in France, United Kingdom, when you start to get deindustrialization, which is to say that shift from production back to circulation, it happens in racialized ways. There's lots of reasons for this. The most sort of official way is the official union policies of last hired, first fired. So the black Americans who've moved in the first and second great migrations to industrial cities in the north, for the most part, not only the north, uh, they enter into the union, but when deindustrialization starts to happen, and it happens early in, for example, Detroit, right, uh, our great industrial center, you start, Detroit is already deindustrializing by the late 1950s. It peaks in employment in 1956, and it starts to shed at that point employment fairly swiftly. Uh, so there's relatively more and more black employees in Detroit in the, in the, in the 60s, but in absolute number because there's massive white flight, right? But in absolute numbers, it's no longer absorbing. Uh, Workers, in fact, it's starting to expel workers, not just white workers, but black workers. It's still absorbing Arab Americans. As you may know, you may know Detroit is, uh, remains the largest concentration of Arab Americans in the United States because of that influx of labor that happens in the late 50s and 60s. But so the expulsion from the production process is highly racialized, and this is true across the country. So even as production is still booming for a certain cadre of white workers in various places, black former workers are being expelled from production. So the shift into circulation happens from production to circulation happens for racialized populations before it happens for white populations. And this is universally true across the United States. This is true without fail. So you get this essentially double motion. Capitalism starts to weaken and in the 1960s, and there's a massive economic crisis at a global level in 1973, profitability collapses. And capitalism starts looking for profits, not in production, in the factory, but in circulation. So finance schemes, which are pure circulation strategies for capital that sort of move cash around without producing anything new, but also transport, faster turnover, 
FedEx, this is no, no coincidence, is, uh, comes into being in 1973, exactly with the collapse of manufacture. Uh, you get sort of more and more schemes of moving stuff around. Uh, and so capital starts looking for profit in circulation. And at the same time, bodies get moved into circulation, right? Either in these new jobs in that sector, in the service sector, in the circulation sector, or excluded from the economy altogether, which since the 1970s has an increasing number of people who have no access to the formal wage whatsoever and have to make their way through petty production, informal labor. You think of Eric Garner, who gets killed in New York in 2014. A classic example, right, selling individual cigarettes on the street corner because he has no access to the formal labor market. And so he's sort of trying to survive in the space of the market rather than in the space of the factory, which is precisely our distinction, right? So capital moves into circulation, bodies are moved into circulation, and so struggles move into circulation. And this is the return of the riot, and it's highly racialized. So we have a story now. I'm approaching sort of the end of my narration uh, in, of why you get the riots return because of a restructuration of the global economic system that is arranged along racial lines. Now, there's a couple more consequences of this restructuring of the global system, and I want to sort of finish by talking about those. So uh, the United States is, of course, relatively a fantastically wealthy nation. I'm sure you're familiar. Here you are. You could walk around. You get a sense of what a wealthy nation we are. And compared to most nations on the planet, we're still incomparably wealthy. As a nation, the United States is also vastly poorer than it was in 1960. Vastly poorer. This is hard for people to register because you keep hearing reports about Goldman Sachs and, you know, the vice president for something has made a trillion dollars in the last six months. And you're like, well, we're actually an extraordinarily poorer nation than we were. And there's several consequences to this, uh, to this sort of new problem. One, in the most general sense, we've shifted from being a nation of carrots to a nation of sticks. It used to be possible for us to sort of, uh, you think about the various coalitions of the willing when we, when we go off on one of our excellent war adventures. And you know, have you noticed they get smaller and smaller because it's just less and less worth it for people to go along with the U.S. project. There's not much profit in it. There's not much sort of trickle down of global value. And so instead, we sort of have to threaten people to go along with us. More and more, we're a nation which has to compel uh, complicity with us rather than it's sort of seeming worthwhile and profitable for people. And this, of course, happens at a local level as well, where it used to be possible for the United States, who was, who was wealthy enough to purchase the social peace. When things sort of started to go wrong in the streets and people were unhappy, of course, the state and capital sort of working together, they want to spend as little as possible. Everyone wants to keep as much money as they can, but it's worth it to spend some to buy the social peace, to invest in a certain amount of social programs, other kinds of social spending, uh, you know, medical insurance, welfare, uninsurance, employment, various projects. And it's worth it to do that. And those are carrots. The time for carrots has ended. Right? The time for carrots ends in the 1970s, and you start to get sticks. And what a sticks looks like, it looks like intensified policing and intensified incarceration. Again, utterly racialized. So in this region, when social peace can't be, in this, this period, when social peace can't be bought, you get hyper-incarceration, especially of black people, not only, but especially of black people, and you get more and more intensified policing so that people have that experience of endlessly being threatened, menaced with the violence of the cops. So when a kid gets killed, 
it's not merely an isolated incident, but an expression of a sort of an ambient disciplinary violence that's always present. People sort of drives people uh, toward what, what appears as a kind of craziness, uh, which is which is the riot, which is a, a sort of an unbridled refusal of this endless disciplining process. This brings me to my, the last thing I want to talk about before uh, I, I find out if, if you have questions and comments, which is the incredible duration of the Ferguson riots. So the Ferguson riots split very swiftly, like every riot does. And here's the split. I, I sort of make up my own terms for it in the book, and I'm not sure that they're perfect terms. They're, in fact, a little counterintuitive, but I'll try and make sense of them. It splits into two halves, which I'm going to call the discursive riot and the practical riot. So the discursive side is interested in sort of uh, making various kinds of appeals, uh, um, engaging in sort of building its popularity by looking good in the media, it makes demands, it en engages in often non-violent kinds of civil disobedience that look fairly uh, friendly and non-confrontational, uh, it wants to hold the higher moral ground, it gets involved in respectability politics, it operates through kinds of communication. This is the side about which Martin Luther King says the riot is the language of the unheard. Right? It's trying to signify something, it's trying to communicate something. That's the discursive side. Now there's a practical side as well. This might strike you as a strange choice of words. We'll see if it makes sense. The practical side wants to take care of certain things, get things done. The main things it wants to get done are to destroy the power of the police and to um, confront the regime of property, often by destroying it, often in ways that make neighborhoods feel undesirable for outsiders uh, and arrange a kind of social closure of that neighborhood and a, a, a protection and defense of it. And these are practical goals, right? They're taken to be violent and unacceptable, but they're fundamentally practical. They're not trying to win an argument. They're trying to do a thing. Both si neither side is pure. There's obviously sort of rhetorical effects to those practical activities. There's practical aspects to these discursive claims and demands. But you could see that happen in Ferguson, right? On the one hand, you have people marching through the streets in a circle, uh, um, putting their hands up, saying, hands up, don't shoot, right? It was the big slogan, um, making a moral appeal. It's saying, like, we're, we're peaceful, and we're, we're being um, murdered and abused, and we want to make it clear that we're uh, decent and good. We're not interested in fighting back. We want you to win you, win you over to our side, so you'll see this great injustice. The cops pretty much left those people alone. They let them march 24 hours a day. And then there's the side, which was actually in Ferguson, and this is remarkable, engaged for a few days in a shooting war with the cops, uh, driving around and shooting at police, burning various properties, various other kinds of attacks. Now, this split has always happened. It's all, you, if you go back to the civil rights movement, you can think of it as a split between Malcolm and Martin, right? Uh, it's, it's a classic split. In the period of the civil rights movement, the discursive side wins very quickly, right? There's a conflict between the two sides, and the discursive side, which is much more appealing, it's not outlaw, it can do things legally, it, it can reach out to constituencies beyond the people in this immiserated town. It wins very quickly, it sort of hegemonizes the field. The main reason it wins is because it can make demands that get met. It can say, like, we want this program and this program, and we want you to invent HUD, or we want, you to, we want this, and the government does it. The government meets some of the demands, as few as possible, 
but some. The government meets enough demands to end the conflict between the two sides of the riot. The discursive side wins, they get some demands met, and it sort of dies out. This lasts for a while, 50s, 60s, maybe to the 70s. And then it starts to fade because the government can no longer afford to pay off the discursive side and buy the social peace. And that's what we see in Ferguson. In Ferguson, it lasts so long exactly because one side can't dominate the other side. It's not clear that any gains are going to be, that any demands are going to be met, that any social programs are going to be instituted. In fact, it's fairly clear they won't be. And as a result, the discursive side says, well, we have to demonstrate peacefully and win people over to our side. And people think like, well, why? Why? We're not going to get anything out of that. There's nothing to be gotten. And because that can't be resolved, the practical side keeps fighting. And that's why the riot lasts so long in Ferguson, because one side can't successfully dominate the other. And eventually it does. I don't want to claim Ferguson was the revolution. It wasn't, right? It ended. Uh, and the side... Uh, the discursive side more or less constituted its gains. It was unclear for a while what Black Lives Matter was. Now it looks more and more, although not entirely, like a parliamentary body for the most part. It's interested in kinds of reforms. It wants body cameras on cops and community oversight and so on. That's very much the discursive side. So the rift between the two sides has kind of been closed, although we know Black Lives Matter won't endorse a presidential candidate and still in many ways refuses to engage in sort of uh, the weak parliamentary, parliamentarism that had characterized previous such splits. So we remain in this incredibly interesting moment, which is only going to get more interesting because it will continue to be the case that that side of the riot won't successfully sort of dominate the other side and the rift will stay open and as a consequence we'll see riots that last longer and longer. Will they ever be the revolution? Almost certainly not, with one disavowal. Almost no riots historically are the revolution, but no revolution has ever started without a riot. And this is worth remembering when we think about what a riot is. I want to thank you very much for coming tonight. I'm happy to um, answer questions or hear your comments or debate things and see how things go. Uh, but thanks very much for coming out tonight. Yeah, hi. Yeah, I'm just uh, interested whether the uh, strike mode uh, has kind of a parallel to the discursive versus practical uh, rift, or uh, if it ends up being more cohesive, and then how uh, strike ends up relating to revolution. Yeah, those are good questions. And you, they're not really answered in the book, I should say. Like I, said, the, the, I mean, the strike in the, in, the, in the book plays a sort of foil to my trying to think about the riot. But, so yeah, historically, the strike has both sides. And so, you know, strike and riot for me are, as I sort of touched on briefly, like the, the paradigmatic versions of these two larger categories. The strike is the leader of production struggles, as I call them, and the riot of circulation struggles. So circulation struggles would also include, you know, the blockade, the occupation, the commune, at sort of the far end of it. And production struggles, the strike, but also things like sabotage, right, and, and uh, work to order, and various other slowdowns, and various other sort of strategies to interfere with production. In that sense, we can see that split, right? People who want 
want to sabotage. They're not really interested in, they're interested in the same basic category of making successful production impossible in a way that, that um, fucks with capitalism and forces bosses to give in to various things and so on. But they're not really interested in winning a discursive war. So that distinction does exist, although it's increasingly been effaced over the course of the 20th century, as I suggested, where more and more we develop an ideology of strike that's all about a sort of ascetic downing of tools. Uh, um, and, and, a, and a claiming of sort of high moral ground in addition. So strikes have that split. It's probably not as clear, right? The downing of tools is meant to shut down production and that has practical effects. So it's not a perfect split, but I think those sides do exist between those who are like, seize the factories and those who are like, um, we can make a moral claim for a higher minimum wage, right? And those are, those are probably the two sides. Um, the implication for revolution, I think, are very limited. That's the argument the book wants to make. The argument... The book never claims, um, and this, in this case, the book may not be identical to its author, but the book never claims riots are good or bad, uh, nor does it claim strikes are good or bad. It d- doesn't take sides. It merely tries to make a case for why the uh, strike loses its power and then loses its charisma and sort of stops happening. And that remains the situation. Like, strikes right now are non-revolutionary, not because there's anything magically bad about strikes. Strikes are great. Uh, and moreover, I think the minimum thing I could say is people fight where they are. Right? Wherever people are, they fight. And some people are still in jobs, in production, and they're going to strike. That's how you fight there. But there's fewer and fewer people there, and there's fewer and fewer gauges, g- gains to be won. An obvious fact that most people don't uh, reflect on is that historically strikes have only been successful during when there's taut labor markets. When there's very low unemployment, strikes are successful and win large gains. When there's relatively high unemployment, historically we're probably talking anything more than about 35 or 4%, strikes are utterly ineffective. We haven't had unemployment below 4% for your lifetime. Uh, they fidget the figures a little bit, but that's just not happening and it's not coming back. The structure of the economy that can employ that percentage of the people no longer exists. Productivity rate is so high. You look at those factories that make cars that need eight people to work in them, right? And so productivity levels, which is the ratio of how much shit, shit you can make for how few people can make it, are so high that the economy can never, and not just this economy, the New York Times had a great article on this two weeks ago, across the globe, productivity levels are so high that manufacturing is peaking early, meaning that nations get highly built up for productivity without ever employing a lot of people now. It's just not going to happen. So the strike isn't revolutionary, not because it's, in some sense, you know, uh, ontologically good or bad, but it doesn't find itself in a situation where it can do much. Now, if there's a change in the global economy and we start seeing uh, massive absorption of labor, I don't see how that's going to happen. But if that were to happen and we'd get down to 2% unemployment, strikes could be very effective again, at least in terms of winning limited gains. But until then, I wouldn't be optimistic. Yes. Professor Jackson. Um, I, I, I find, I haven't read the book. I didn't read the book. But, but so I find the production circulation narrative very compelling as a lingerie history. And at the same time, you know, I'm tempted to stress lingerie histories just because all kinds of stuff happens and one of these things is not like the other, right? So, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the role of events in the book. Mm-hmm. That is, um, events that tend to, now sometimes, you know, they're clearly just the occasion for a riot. So Katrina, for example, 
This is an event, which is the occasion, you could say, for riots. But you would not say that Katrina is the cause of the riots. You would say that it's the occasion. But there are lots of events like that, right? Like the draft riots. Um, or you could say in Ferguson, Michael Brown is. So, so what's the relation between the occasion and the riot, or is that just a variable calculation? Is there, is it, is it, is it kind of an accidental relation, or is it? No, I don't think it's accidental at all. Um, I mean, I, actually, I think that although you see, you promised at the beginning to disagree with me, I think you, if you've made the, made, made the same argument I, I would make, right? Which is to say, um, it's very hard to say it's an event. Which is to say, um, and this may be surprising, cops are actually not killing kids faster than they were before. Um, the question then we'd have to ask is, why is it now the case that when cops kill black kids? It sets off, it's, it's like immediately everyone, you read it in the paper in some town somewhere. I was in Copenhagen when Michael Brown got killed and I was like, this is going down and I flew back. Uh, why is it the case now, given that it's not a new event on the face of the earth and even a more common event, why does it start a riot when it guaranteed when it didn't used to? And that's what I'm sort of trying to think through. And that's when I started to get to this question of these long durée determinants for why uh, in a period where there's not more killings, there are more killings leading to riots. Uh, and that's sort of what the book is trying to think through. So circulation is a way of thinking about, that's shorthand, as I think you suggest, for many different phenomena, including intensified policing, intensified incarceration. These are all inevitable consequences of, of a shift to circulation um, because you have more and more unemployed people and they have to be managed. Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book, Golden Gulag, if you haven't uh, had a chance to look at it, it's a fantastic book. It's about hyper-incarceration of black people since the 70s. Uh, and it's a remarkable book. And that gives a sort of a good account of why this economic collapse leads to hyper-incarceration, hyper-policing, and how that is going to generate. Uh, um, She doesn't talk about riots, but I take from that pretty heavily why that's going to give you riots instead of of strikes. Now, it's only um, tendential. It's still not guaranteed. In fact, black kids still get shot, and it doesn't start a riot sometimes. But more and more it does, right? There's this tangential shift that seems pretty clear. But you're right. It's a a question about why a specific event shifts from being an event to an occasion. I think that's right. Yeah, hi. Does social media media have a role? This is amazing. It's amazing that you've asked that question, and I'll tell you why it's amazing. I'm not good at judging people, but I'm guessing you're not a teenager. I get asked, I get asked this question at every talk, and it's always by a, a teenager or undergraduate um, who deeply believes that social media has changed everything, uh, really is committed to that idea. I don't want to poo-poo that. Like, I just don't want to be like an old guy who's like, nah, they're always ball. Um, there's always been her. Um, <laughs> It's not clear to me. You know, there's a really interesting... Sh- I keep on recommending other people's books. It's a bad strategy for a book talk, but meh. There's a really interesting little collection put together called The Great Baltimore Uprising of 2015, an epistolary story, which just gathers tweets from mostly teenagers in Baltimore during two- the 2015 riots and just w- w- whams them all together from a 10-day period from the 19th to the 29th of April, which is the length of the riot. And you look through that and you kind of do have a feeling that... Um, um, there was something about 
the conceptual space and the organizing space of social media that made certain things possible, the first big action of that riot, which was a gathering of young people in an area of Baltimore called Mondaman, uh, was certainly organized on social media and allowed by that. I tend not to think it's a root cause, but it certainly provides these other kinds of affordances um, that allow things to move fairly swiftly. Um, the question, the, I mean, the, I might relate that question to the question I'm really interested in, which is about why, when and where and how and why and why not do riots generalize? Does it go from being a riot in a town to a sort of national riot where you think about 1968, MLK gets killed? Now, that's pre-social media in some sense, although we had newspapers, which were a kind of social media, and television is a kind of social media. But that's a national riot, right? MLK gets killed and there's riots across the nation, 50, 60 cities. And that's allowed for because he is in some sense a national figure, right? He's already known to the nation and people have opinions and stances and attachments to him and these can get mobilized in the space of the newspapers and the, and the, the news. So what's really interesting to me about the president right, is Michael Brown is not a national figure. Michael Brown was known as Mike Mike to his neighbors and he was just a kid who lived in Ferguson. And yet Michael Brown can become the occasion for this national phenomenon. That seems like a change to me. And I don't understand it yet, but I want to, and I want to think about it in relation to social media. I don't know, what do you think? Do you have, a, do you have a, an opinion? I, I guess, I think things are moving so much faster now. Yeah. Social, social media allows it. There have been so many profound changes, for instance, gay marriage, and the kind of more awareness of what black people suffer. I, I think I think we're more aware of it than we were in the 60s. I mean, certainly some of us were very aware of it well, so what's fascinating is there's a there's a I hesitate to use the term because it's gets me in trouble, but it's uh, like there's a dialectic, right? Which is on the one hand we're we're um, we're more aware of it. On the other hand, it, it seems to have made not only no difference but the reverse of difference. But we seem to in fact treat black people. Sorry, a weird sentence. We black people. All right, let, let me back off for a second. It seems to me like. Um, this increased awareness has not led to a decrease in white supremacy and the ways it exercises its power. So the increased awareness has actually gone with this intensification, particularly of policing and incarceration that I've, that I've talked about. And so I guess I'd want to think about those two things together, why this rise in awareness and knowledge has corresponded not to a greater decency and compassion and sympathy, but has in fact corresponded to the opposite of that. We can think about Donald Trump's presidency and the opportunity it seems to have provided for a, a sort of stratum of people to revel in open racism, right? Um, and I'm not, yeah, I, mean, I don't even know if it's just backlash. Like my story is probably less about backlash and more about historical tendencies where the, um, the long-term relationship between people who have, who feel like they have um, a safe and satisfying life that's at risk of being swept away and the people they identify as the people who are going to sweep that away or threats to that, that's a long-term development, right? That, produce, that production of a sense of precarity among the middle class did not exist in 1950. My generation, more or less, is the first downwardly mobile generation in the history of the nation, right? And that particular phenomenon, that historical experience, I think, 
is inseparable from various kinds of intensification of intergroup hostility as a sense that there's less and more and more risk that someone's going to take what you have and you might lose what you have and you're barely holding on. Uh, and so I think for me it's very hard to separate this open antagonism and racial antagonism from that long-term trajectory of a, of a precarious and worried middle class. Yes, sir. Uh, you've talked a bit about um, riots and revolution, but there's like a bunch of interesting questions with riot and reform. Right? Yeah. During, I mean, I guess during the part of the 20th century that would be in your strike periodization, right? Riots seem pretty important for reform, right? Whether it's Watts or the Bonus Army. And at a certain point, that like efficacy changes, right? Yeah. A bit after Watts. And, um, you know, maybe. Um, I mean, I'm curious how that, I guess, relates to your periodization, right? Does, in the this sort of eras of riots, why are they not, because they can't be, um, you know, sort of like responded to in production, right? Do they lose their vehicles for reform? I don't know if they lose their efficacy as vehicles for reform. And that's the discursive side of the right is the reform side, right? It wants to make demands and say, like, well, the clear response to the endless murder of black kids is body cameras on cops, right? And that's a, that's a demand for reform. That's, that's you know, one example. Um, so the, the part of the riot that's willing to work toward reform rather than revolution, as you've aggressively transcoded my... Uh, discursive and practical <laughs> um, still exists. Um, it's, so it's not that the riot doesn't ask for that. It's, a, it's a, that, a, that that ask can't be met anymore. It's not like riots became more revolutionary. I don't, I don't want you to think I'm saying that. It's that the non-revolutionary part no longer has a persuasive claim so that the demands for reform the riot could once levy, it didn't levy because of the riot. It levied, it could successfully levy those because of what was out there to be gotten, which is just not out there to be gotten anymore. Does that, does that answer your question? Or? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I'm not like the discur- I, I don't know that it has much to do with like the demands that are made, right? That the riots that have a, like, um, you know, some kind of reformist efficacy. I don't think it necessarily has to do with there being this other layer that's making reasonable demands on state made, right? The, the state scrambling to. Oh no! Oh no! Absolutely! No, that's quite right. I mean, you could even say that in the you know the 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 practical side or the revolutionary side has to be there to scare the shit out of someone, or the or the that like the reform side needs that, the discursive side needs that. So the last wave of responses to the race riots, as they were called, it's a terrible name. I hope, I hope you know that like the tradition of race riots in the United States exists from 1880, and from 1880 to the 19, late 1940s and 1950s, it refers to white groups attacking groups of color uh, aggressively, brutally, and fatally. And it only reverses polarity to be about, uh, usually black communities, but not exclusively, um, engaging in riot in the, in the 1960s. Uh, but so the, the race riot in the 60s, the final wave of, of proposed reforms, the Kerner Report gets generated after this. In 1967, there's about 160 race riots in the United States. In 1968, almost as many. And the uh, LBJ commissions the Kerner Report, and it proposes a whole bunch of reforms. And it clearly proposes them 
because not because plausible demands were made in Watts or Newark or Detroit or Chicago or Chicago again or all the various places, but because the, they were so um, extraordinarily destructive and threatening. Right, Newark is the biggest property. Uh, uh, sorry, Detroit in 1967 is the biggest property uh, rebellion in the history of the United States until LA 92. Uh, they're so destructive that. Uh, it seems like something should be done about it. But, in fact, the reforms proposed in the Kerner Report are never done. Like, that's about when the U.S. starts to run out of spare money. Uh, and so they're never done. And after that, the riot, is, the riot loses its capacity for reform. But, again, not because of some change in the riot, because of some change in the larger occasion. One last question. Anyone got one? Yeah, hi, thanks. Oh, yeah, I have two. I'll, I'll take them. I'll take them both. I got nowhere to go. <laughs> I'm curious what your views are, your deeper views are, maybe morally on uh, the, the struggle between practical and discursive. So the discursive is um, more formative in the sense of like trying to make reforms talking to certain government figures, the police. But let's say one of the paradigms of that, that sort of trajectory is to have body cameras. Mm. Sort of like digitized panopticon, right? Yeah. But we've already seen that that doesn't work. So it's we, I, I think that, but not everyone does. Yeah. Well, there are sort of struggles within like further movements yeah. since the Michael Brown case where um, people realize that regardless of how they're looked at when they're outside of their homes, um, protesting peacefully, that a camera that views them is always going to, when analyzed, it's going to hold them under. Um, they're going to be in the wrong no matter what. Yeah. So if the practical side can't be appeased by that sort of major facet of the discursive side, mm-hmm. how can the practical side uh, like remain resilient? And rather than, because you were saying part of the practical side is this sort of implosive energy, right? Yeah. How can they remain resilient without destroying certain parts of the neighborhood or even destroying their morality and losing hope entirely? Mm. That is, I mean, so that's a question. That's of the category of question that I admire the most because they're unanswerable. Like, if I knew the answer to that, we'd be having a revolution now, right? Um, uh, and we're not. Um, I don't worry about riots destroying their own neighborhoods. I, like, who gives a shit? I think that's, that's, a, that's just a complaint that white people like to make to try and discredit people. But the point about demoralization, I think, is an extremely important point, right? Why do, if the practical side the militant side, the revolutionary side, whatever you want to call it. I don't think these, I don't think such people very often think of themselves as revolutionaries, but they might be anyway. Um, if they can't be modulated, recuperated, brought in by the discursive side, what does stop them? Um, so they run out of things to burn. In Ferguson, they did. <laughs> um, uh, but no, because uh, it's not. You know, because there's a lot of I don't know if you saw the images from Ferguson, right? But there were periodic claims on television that there wasn't a lot of military hardware, and that's utter nonsense. I was there. I watched hardened Humvees with soldiers in helmets and flak jackets rolling through the streets. Uh, And that's hard to fight. Um, So even though that side might know body cameras are an absurdity, and of course you're quite right, um, the, the overcoming of what it means to fight soldiers 
in military gear is not an easy biscuit, right? That's a, that's a tough one. And I don't know, like, and the answer is, as far as I can tell, like even greater immiseration, which I don't root for. But people keep fighting when they have no choice, not because they've had some revelation. You know, one of the things that's, I think, worth noting about the change in the structure of the riot is this very simple but profound historical inversion that's happened. If you go back to, let's say, 1600, the basic structure of society was that the economy was near and the state was far. Most of the things you needed to survive on were made within 50 miles of where you lived, maybe all of them. Whereas the state, there was no police force then, right? There's no, there's maybe a couple bailiffs, a beetle in town, not not much. There's not much state representation. Um, But the economy is everywhere. Now we're in a reverse situation, right? The economy is far. The things we need to survive are made far away. If you need a refrigerator to survive, you know how many refrigerators get made in America every year? Zero. That's just one example. The economy is far, but the state is near. There's cops on every corner. Uh, And that inversion, historically, has really conditioned the possibilities and structures of the riot, so that when the riot used to clearly throw itself against the economy in 1600, 1700, 1745, 1801, now it throws itself against the state, right? It's always fighting the cops. If you look at Greece, it's attacking the parliamentary building ritualistically over and over again. The riot has to go against the state because the state's what's right there in front of them and not the economy. And that, to me, is is the thing to be overcome, right? Is how does the riot turn itself away from an endless antagonism with the state and toward an antagonism with the economy? For me, that's the great question. I think it's related to the question you asked, or I hope it is. Ian? Um, This draws on some of the earlier questions, but I wonder if you have an account of um, possible differences in the aftermath of strikes in the recent period. So maybe in my ignorance, but it seems like Ferguson had... You mean riots or strikes? Oh, sorry, why? Okay. Sorry. Uh, Ferguson had seemed to have a great staying power, certainly discursively, in a way that the Tottenham riots, as far as I can tell, did not. And you couldn't account for that on you know, social media, just as available in London after the riots. I mean, do, do you have, even if they, said they share a structure, uh, according to your periodization, do you have an account of the sort of texture of the aftermath? I'm not sure I do, and here I'd want to yield to what I think Jenny was implying and other people, right, that, that, that although I do have a long durée story, I think it's pretty explanatory, it doesn't mean to exhaust the he- ways that episodes are particular and heterogeneous and in ways often I don't understand. Another distinction I would draw between Ferguson 1, right, in August, and Tottenham is that one spreads and the other doesn't. Ferguson 1 doesn't spread. Ferguson 2 spreads nationally. But Ferguson 1 doesn't spread even though it's a sustained and dramatic and the most violent riot in, in recent memory, it does not spread. Tottenham did spread, actually. Tottenham spread to several cities in the UK, several other parts of London. You look at Crichy Soubois in France in 2005, also a huge riot that spread across, like, they were started in the suburbs, which is a different term in France, right? The suburbs of the Banlieue are incredibly impoverished regions, but it starts there, and it actually leaps to other impoverished suburbs across France before it moves into Paris. But that's an extraordinary jump. And Tottenham moves more or less the same way. So that would be the question. This doesn't answer your question. It, 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 you've suggested to me another thing I'm really curious about is why you get these kind of national leaps in some cases and not in other cases. Of course, it's, 
the structure of, of England, the structure of France, is different from the ge geopolitical structure of the U.S., so we can start to generate reasons. But, but yeah, I think it's hard to tell like what the trajectory is going to be. Like Baltimore also doesn't, doesn't spread. When the verdict comes back on the six cops who killed Freddie Gray, I'm very curious as to what's going to happen. And you can see this is now one of the fundamental forms. This is an interesting, this is like interesting change in our lives, right? There's a particular performance that we will live through now every year for the rest of our lives, which is the legislative structure trying to manage from a PR perspective its handling of the arrest of police officers and the indictment of them in a way that, like, you saw what they did in Ferguson. They delayed it as long as they could until the weather was bad, thinking that would stop the riots. They were wrong, but that was what they, what they went for. And this, like, management of trials to try and minimize the catastrophic outcome of not imprisoning police officers for killing black kids is just going to be a fundamental feature of social existence for the rest of our lives. That's weird um, and strange and worth thinking about. Thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, and it's nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. The reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.